Welcome to the One Haas Alumni Podcast. I'm your co-host today, Sean Lee, and I'm joined by Keitha Pansy. She was one of our recent guests, one of my favorite guests, Keitha Pansy, and I'll let you take it off. Thanks, Sean. I'm so honored to be welcome and invited to the One Haas Podcast again in celebration of Women's History Month. And I am super excited for our guest today, Emily Cortez, who is the Chief Financial Officer of Tonic and Treasurer of Compton Foundation. But more importantly, my favorite title is my B-School Bestie. So Emily and I, she is my fellow Haas classmate from 2002 from the full-time MBA program. And she is a superstar. So I am completely biased in having her as our first guest for the International Women's Month. And when I say B-School Bestie, she is just that 20 some odd years later. (laughs) (laughs) But she is a superstar in the world of finance. She has had several pivots in her career, and I look forward to engaging with her. She is not only an MBA, but she is a chartered financial analyst as well as a chartered alternative investment analyst. So she's like a triple threat in the world of finance, and she's a woman. It's like having an EGOT, right? An Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony. So she has all three. (laughs) So Emily Cortez, I welcome you to the One Hod Podcast. How are you? I'm great. I have to say, though, you're not biased. You're just right. So I want I want the rest of the world, the Haas, the Haas community, to get to know my M. And as I mentioned, I preface with you've had several pivots, interesting ones, in your career. And I have been so grateful to journey along each of them with you since we met in 2000. So let's start with what were you doing right after we graduated from business school? What did you do? And well and why? So I had a, several different roles in finance and, you know, part of this too, if you ever met me, I'm five foot one, I'll be self-described as curvy. I'm blonde. No one assumes that I'm a quant jock, right? So I kind of have that chip on my shoulder. But then I went into structured finance, structuring collateralized debt obligations, selling portfolio analytic tools to hedge funds, and then uh, basically transitioned into portfolio management, managing probably about $7 billion worth of Taft-Hartley Union pension funds and also foundations, which is how I got connected to the Compton Foundation. So that I kind of call like my first third of my career out of business school was really very, very focused on technical finance. I'm going to jump in right there, Ashley. I would love to hear a little bit about your background, Emily. Well, I'm glad you said that because I actually, you know, Keitha calls me her B-School bestie. Well, it's not just because we got along great in business school, but she hails from a small town in Arkansas. I hail from a small town in South Texas. Um, She went to Howard. I went to American University in DC. And we both show up in Berkeley. And then when she's at uh, BGI, Berkeley's Global Investors, I was working across the street at Moody's KMV in their farm shop. So it just like, there's some really amazing parallels of two kind of small town gals showing up in DC and having a worldly experience and then uh, being very ambitious and successful in the rest of our careers and continuing to support each other, both in our career and and truly and emotionally. So I value her very much. You know, Em, I completely, I, it's not that I completely forgot about that because I will share in my initial written intro of you, I noted that we were both Southern girls, but Mm -hmm. you know, I, I I guess because we've been, we've been on this path for a while together. I forget about you were at American university. I was at Howard university Mm -hmm. and then we both landed at Berkeley and Haas. Let's, I think this is Haas brought us together, but our journeys were parallel and we didn't even know each other until 2000. Right. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Thanks, Haas. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm really curious how you came to pick finance as a career path. Oh, completely out of survival. Uh, 
I grew, I grew up very, with very little, I call it goodwill poor. I mean, I had a house over my, you know, roof over my head and we had food, but we couldn't afford new clothes. So for me, I, I never really had the luxury of thinking, I'm going to be an artist. It's like, how do I make money? How do I be independent? How do I survive and thrive? And I was always good at math and great at school. So that was absolutely just a no-brainer. That's why I picked finance. Maybe you can share also, Em, how many of us were there in like finance? I think the majority of our class, when, they, when it came to women, right, were focused in consulting and marketing. Yeah, that used to drive me nuts because people were like, oh, I thought you were a sales and yeah, they're like, you you seem like a sales and marketing kind of gal. I'm like, what? Because I'm a woman? Because I have long hair? Like, no, y'all. Oh, I have a really funny story, actually. In our micro econ class, so I got this reputation for taking tests really fast. I mean, I just think really fast. I'm the opposite of performance anxiety <laughs> tests. And there's one test I actually completely blew because they, the professor said, even if you mess up one step, if you carry that error through and demonstrate that you know the concept, well, I messed up the first one and he gave me zero credit. I'm like, wait, what? So it's my first failing grade in my entire life. And then thankfully he said, whatever you get on the final, if it's greater than your average, that'll be your final grade for the whole class. So you better believe I, I studied my butt off. For that final. And I think there were like 200 people in that final exam. And I went so slow. It's like, like molasses and double checking and triple checking. And like, there's no way I've made a single error. And in fact, later I did, I made a 99 on that exam. And I was still out of the 200, like the fourth person to finish. And later, some of the guys said they actually put money on it. And, and some people lost some money because they thought I would be the first one as usual. I mean, like the one test that people would put money on me being first. So somebody called me the secret genius because, you know, it's what you judge people by, right? I don't look very smart. <laughs> I don't look what the, the, you know, stereotypical image of what a smart person looks like, right? So that's also, I like that triple threat because people have low expectations and then I get a chance to blow them out of the water. Still to this day, you are the secret genius, Em. <laughs> but that's part of why I have, you know, I call it the trilogy. Why I have an MBA, a CFA, and a Kaya is to be taken seriously, is to have right. uh, a seat at the table. Because people see that and they go, oh, well, I can't actually blow this person off. They may truly know what they're talking about. I think we as women have to do that to prove ourselves. Would you not agree? Absolutely. And, you know, I've also talked about this with my colleagues who are women of color who do it even more than I do. Hello, right. sister friend. Yeah. <laughs> Hello. As you, know, yeah. as you know, I have not stopped at an MBA and continue to get more letters behind my name. We have to. Yeah. I hope, you know, for the generations behind us, it should not be the case. That's my hope. And that, that is my and that's what we're yes. working, and that is what mm -hmm. we're working to change. Let's pivot out of your quant life into yeah. what I find as the most fascinating part of your journey to date. But it's only look, we're still on life's journey, right? Yeah. But I do remember the day you called me to tell me, I'm thinking about buying. Well, let me take <laughs> a step back. Let me share with the rest of the world. Most people, when I describe Emily, I'll say, I will actually start with, she's a mountaineer. Mm -hmm. And people will give me this strange look, like, what's that? <laughs> I'm like, she climbs. Oh, okay. Like boulders. I was like, yeah, she can do that. But then I'm like, no, like Denali or Kilimanjaro. And so let's talk about this pivot and this interest of you. I remember when you used to ask me, do you want to go snow camping on a mountain? Remember that? And they were like, no. <laughs> like, no. She said, she didn't just say no. She said, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> My blood is not built for that. Let's talk about this shift that started with, you know, you climbing, but it also, I think, was the launch pad of your entrepreneurial path. Yeah, for sure. And it also, it, 
it had a huge impact on e- even who I am today and my the professional yeah. risks I've taken and things like that. So mm-hmm. it's probably a year or two after business school, I got into mountaineering. I'm not athletic, never have been, love the outdoors, but then... You are athletic. Well... You are athletic. I have never thought of myself as athletic. <laughs> well, I only have one friend who's climbed those peaks. Only one. That's you and... And yeah, you are a girl. I am a girl. I am a girl. And I was pretty shocked that I actually did a really good job. So even though I'm small, I can carry really large loads and I can, I can handle altitude really well. And I'm just built for like, I can do 20 hours without stopping. I'm not fast. I don't look fit. I'm not tall with a nice long stride, but I can do, I can definitely carry large packs for like expedition style climbing. Denali is one of the mountains I climbed as well as an 8,000 meter peak called Makalu. I did not summit, but I did survive. And so it's, it's another area of my life where, where people are really shocked and totally underestimate me, especially if I show up and I'm going to do a trip with a bunch of men. Early on, I did guided stuff. So that would happen. They seriously, every time would look at me like, oh my God, we're going to probably have to carry this woman down the mountain or her stuff. And there were so many times when like the guys wouldn't have trained and they would be exhausted. And I would like whisper to them, Hey, do you want me to take your rope? I still have energy. And they're like, Oh my God, thank you. That'd be great. But you can't tell it to everybody because then, you know, the fragile male ego, right? But that's because I trained and I've always been like super group oriented, very collaborative. Well, in the beginning would lead from behind. Now I'm much more comfortable leading from the front. But the thing that that did for me was, I would come back to the office in my overwhelmingly alpha male dominated finance career. And I just stopped being intimidated because I'm like, you guys went to your kid's soccer game or you mowed your lawn or whatever. And like, I climbed Rainier. So why am I afraid of you? <laughs> right? Like, honestly, right. God, that, right. that changed me completely. And it did then. So then I just bit off a little bit more and I started leading and I found people like actually trusted my judgment and would listen to me. It blew my mind. And it, you know, kind of fast forward, I was very frustrated with the finance world and a lot of the ethos about just kind of chewing people up and spitting them out, not always doing right by the client. I'm not a yes man. That doesn't always go over well with management. Uh, (laughs) And so I had this opportunity to buy a small international women's adventure travel company. And I traveled extensively um, internationally, been to all sorts of places that we could run as trips, speak a bunch of languages, had the guiding background. And, you know, I am known to launch into these uh, soliloquies and take anything that's happening, like somebody's tired and didn't ask for help. So I'm going to turn that into a lesson for everyone about why we need to put our own oxygen mask on first in order to be a great teammate, right? So this, buying this company, which is called Call of the Wild, it's pretty inexpensive. It was less than a house, just in case you're impressed that I bought a company. But it really fits so many aspects of my personality, my, my personal mission. I definitely like ran it like no other adventure travel company is run in terms of the, the books were actually right and I could project cash flow and things like that. But then I did open up to, you know, I was working with people. I was really working on the culture being a very inspirational culture, not just perfectly executing itineraries, but really giving something that people would come back. And they'd write me letters and say, the horizon looks different to me now. And mm. that was so, so meaningful. And then I did a lot of sales and marketing and found that I actually kind of liked it. <laughs> Don't tell the guys back in business school. Yeah. And it was fabulous. But in the end, you just, you know, when you, when you want to buy or run a business, you kind of want to look at ones where you'll be um, swimming downstream. You know, the market trends are working Mm. with you. There's growth opportunities. There's economies of scales. The more you grow, the more you make. That's not true with venture travel. There is disintermediation in terms of the actual planning of travel, uh, flights, hotels, things like that. Self-guided tours are really growing in in, uh, popularity versus guided tours. And then our company really focused on kind of older women. So older now that I'm in my 40s, I don't like that, but 40s to even 70s, super fit women, had some disposable income, 
because of the generation had grown up a little bit, you know, generation before us didn't have as much autonomy, taking care of the kids more. This is like their second part of their life. I want to do something for me. I want adventure. And I'm not excited about going and doing that with a few 20-year-old guys as the guides. So that was our, our niche and it was very powerful, but our clients were also aging out because the new generation did not want to go guided. They want the adventure of planning it themselves. So pretty much mm. every single trend was working against me. And even though I was starting to turn it around and I even won an Entrepreneur of the Year award here at Ben, I did decide to shut it down in 2016 because I put all my assets into it at that point and the next one was going to have to be my house. And that's where I had drawn the line. So I did shut it down. And I have to say, I'm so grateful now with COVID. If I was in the travel business, I, I would have lost my house. So it was, it was a tough thing at the time, but it did create a launching pad for some other opportunities and then uh, saved me from being a wrong kind of business the, the pandemic. I think what's uh, what we must note here is you spoke about everything that you were doing to run that business, which you can fall back on what we learn at Haas. Would oh, you not yeah. agree? Oh, yeah. Super well-rounded business professional. Absolutely. And the ability to... There's so many times in my career that I have reached out to my colleagues. I mean, I've had colleagues as, as clients on Call of the Wild when I was structuring one of those really large collateralized debt obligations and I needed a line of credit for the equity tranche and we won't go into the details of what that is. I'd never, I didn't even really understand what a line of credit was. I knew it needed to be 500 million and that was really big. And so I called, I can't remember who it was, but they were at Wells Fargo and I was like, can I ask you all my stupid questions about lines of credit? And they're like, yeah. And through that conversation, then I got connected to their bank, banker, and then was able to have an intelligent conversation with another bank and like single-handedly right out of business school with no experience in commercial banking was able to structure a $500 million line of credit, which is part of why I ended up getting promoted to vice president because I could ha like have no knowledge about something and take it all the way to completion and, and do it on my own, even when I wasn't very experienced. But uh, the, the network and the knowledge and everything, I mean, I would definitely not be where I am today without Haas. So we close out Call of the Wild. We can, we can go overseas if you want, or we can go into... Yeah, I mean, I'll just, we'll just in, touch into, on it. We'll just touch, just on, touch it. on it. I had an opportunity then. So I was like, okay, no more, no business. I was still fighting going back to finance. And I got an opportunity. It's, it's kind of a turnaround situation with my ground handler, my trekking company in Arusha, Tanzania to help professionalize a family business, basically. But it was run by two people that were divorcing and needed somebody to come in that was professional and just run it and take the, the family dynamics out of it. And in about six months, I, I like nearly turned the company around but couldn't overcome the interpersonal dynamics. And so I left. But I have to say that in that short period of time, it was the second time I'd lived abroad, but first time like, working abroad, running a company abroad, running a company with like 200 people, learning their language, the culture, bridging cultures, because we had, all of our clients were Western, like tremendous learning experience. And I do wish I could have stayed longer, but that's just how it worked. And it put me in a position then where I said, okay, I got to come back to finance. <clears throat> I got to get a quote unquote real job again. <laughs> I recall us having a conversation when you were there early on. And I was like, girl, what are you doing? And you said, <laughs> I said, are we sure about this? No. <laughs> but we, we weren't sure, right? Yeah. But I remember you saying, I was like, okay, so you're turning around. Okay, what's your position? Remember, like, I was like, what position are you playing? And you said, I'm a CEO, I'm a CFO, I'm a uh -huh. COO, and I'm a CMO. And sometimes I do actual guides. And I was like, yeah, yeah. I, I did the emoji of hitting my face. <laughs> and then it was like, are they paying you enough? <laughs> um, no. <laughs> no. 
No, but but I it do was see. Awesome. Then I learned like, it was I awesome experience. Companies. I love running you companies. Do. I you love doing it all. Companies. I love managing it all. I just want more stable income. So that's where that's I said, right. okay, I, you know, that's, that's what brought us back home. Yes. And actually, you know, the other thing about having a, you know, really protect your reputation because having a good reputation, continuing to stay in touch with people in your network. But honestly, sometimes I'll call somebody I haven't talked to in 10 years and they'll help me out. Right. But I put the, right. the feelers out to my network and I'm like, I don't know exactly what I want next, but I know this it needs to be senior management. It needs to be working for an inspired company. It needs to have some kind of flexibility. I just can't do the commercial bank being a cog in the wheel, exactly 8.30 to 5.30 kind of job, right? And then like, like really not just being an inspired organization in terms of the culture, but the mission has to be powerful and aligned with my passion. Because that was the best thing about Call of the Wild was feeling that every day I was doing something that I loved, even if I was filling out a permit or something like that, that was very administrative. So Tonic, so that came to me from my network that Tonic C-Suite, nonprofit, great culture, located in San Francisco. And the, the mission is to promote impact investing globally. It is the only job that I applied for. And, and I got it because I wasn't going to apply for anything else that was just, you know, just to have a paycheck. So now we're at, we've been at Tonic for about three or four years. I think you're going yeah. into your fourth year, yeah. right? Yeah, um, getting up there. And your work at Tonic has absolutely expanded your ecosystem of players within the impact space, which I think, if you don't mind, I want to make sure we drop the nuggets about your recent article along with Tracy Gray, who is also a fellow Haas alum. And you both recently published an article with the Stanford Social Innovation Review entitled, How Foundations Fail Diverse Fund Managers and How to Fix It. And I, I call on everyone listening to this podcast, we will, we will link it and to take a moment and read that. But in this, in this publication, you and Tracy, you don't touch on anything that's new. But what yeah. I appreciate about the article is you, you give us actionable items to take away. And this focuses on, let me share with uh, our community foundations. And so let's talk about why you focused on foundations. And then I really want to do a deep dive into the actionable items, like the five action items you've called out in the article. So those that are listening that are in this space, you're like, these are some low-hanging fruit that I can just take away and run with back to my organization. Let me back up a little bit because I think this is, this is important is that I mentioned that I had foundation clients when I was an investment consultant. So Compton Foundation mm -hmm. was one of my clients. And when I left finance and, and gave the industry the bird temporarily, Compton Foundation asked me to stay on and serve on the board as their treasurer. So I've been in that role. I've been working with them for almost 12 years and in this role for about 10. And I, I did it not only because I cared and they are impact investors and very inspired, but also, you know, I had this thing in the back of my head, I'm going to keep this. It's kind of like a if a woman takes off time for maternity, but keeps this one thing going so that there's no break on their resume. So I kept that mm -hmm. as my, like showing that I didn't have a break in finance, but it ended up becoming very critical because um, yeah, I manage all of the investments and the budget and got the inside view of, um, of how a foundation is run and the relationship with an investment advisor, the IRS regulations about how much can be spent and fiduciary duty and those kinds of things. So that's why I connected with Tracy Gray, but she's EMBA 2007. We were at a conference called Confluence Philanthropy. That's for foundations that are impact investors. And I, it's hard to remember exactly. I think she was on a panel and I went up to her and I expressed this frustration of hearing the same exact questions being asked by the audience members, I'm like, I've been hearing this for like the last 10 years. And so we had a drink and we're just kind of complaining about the state of the, the industry. So we then a year later saw each other at the same conference in Brooklyn, heard the same kinds of things, which we were in Is this when you came to visit me in Brooklyn? Yes. Oh, yay. Yeah. <laughs> 
know. I was there. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I was there for that conference. Yeah, yeah. And we were like, okay, we, we actually have to do something about this. And throughout that next year, we started to work together virtually. There's so many issues and mm-hmm. so many parts of the system and the interconnectedness that's broken. But we were, right. you know, really, really focusing on what are the ones that you can change today? People get very overwhelmed by systemic change, mm-hmm. but there are some things you can literally change today. And that was our focus. And then the next year was right before COVID, February 28th, we were in Puerto Rico and we're working on this article in the conference. We're like literally out by the pool. She's drinking a mojito. I'm drinking a pina colada. And these, (laughs) especially women are coming by and going, what are you guys working on? And two of those women are now are quoted in the article, Rachel Ribashati and Kristen Hall, who are both impact investors. And they were like, oh, yes, you need to write this. So what we wrote, anyone that's read it has said, I've never seen this before. And like you said, no concept is new, but to just shine the light on foundation practices where foundations are, especially those that are actually focusing their mission on gender equity or racial justice, but are investing Mm -hmm. in a way that keeps capital out of the hands of the people they're actually trying to benefit. And so because foundations have their programming side, we call it, that gives the grants and the other side of the house is the investments and nary the two speak. And it's actually hard to translate Mm -hmm. between the two, right? And that's part of the problem is that investments are done in a way that often doesn't consider one's mission, personal values, even just, you know, does this have any uh, negative externalities, the thing that we're investing it's very, very focused on uh, a really narrow returns. definition of fiduciary duty. Yep. Mm-hmm. Maximize returns, minimize returns. risk. And we, mm-hmm. and we all know, like anybody that has, like you're working on your CFP, Certified Financial Planner, you know, these other CFA and Kaya that I have, we all talk about uh, creating an investment policy statement that's your guiding light and that it should reflect the values of the client in this case, foundation. So you think about all these other things, liquidity, duration, yes, returns, risk or volatility, what the asset class uh, composition should be, geography. Do you want US only? Do you want global? Do you want emerging markets, market capitalization? Do you want exposure to small caps, large caps, you know, um, private equity? But you can have all of these other criteria besides risk and return. But for some reason, you can't consider the mission. And what traditional traditional advise, advisors, traditional investors, institutional investors will use fiduciary duty as a crutch and say, we can't consider anything else but risk and return, or we'll be violating our fiduciary duty, which sounds very scary. Nobody wants to get sued for violating fiduciary duty. Well, the, the concept of fiduciary duty has evolved and the um, United Nations, oh gosh, I can't remember what PR stands for, something responsible investing, has come out with a bunch of papers about the law in different regions. There's one in the US, UK, et cetera, mm-hmm. but stating that you're actually violating your fiduciary duty by not considering your mission. And a very simple example to demonstrate that is that let's say you're into the environment and you have $100 and you want to give $5 to Greenpeace, okay? So foundations have to spend 5% each year on average Mm -hmm. towards the mission. But then you invest the other 95% in Exxon the year before the oil spill, right? So this is actually how the entire system works, is that 5% on average is spent each year, and the other 95% is, is invested without consideration to the mission. So now there's much more, as one of my passions actually, because I'm a nerd, is about fiduciary duty and the application of it and that one's values or mission is part of your fiduciary duty. You cannot be violating that. Hmm. Especially if you're a foundation, you're a charitable right. institution, the whole reason you're tax exempt is to fulfill that mission. So now the other thing about Tracy. So Tracy is also, she's an African-American female. She's also ridiculously overqualified. She's been a rocket scientist at NASA, no joke. Um, she has run companies. She's running a fund of uh, a fund right now called the Twenty Two Fund. She is a trustee on a university endowment. So she has all these roles too. Where I have entrepreneurial experience, running a nonprofit that's an impact investing network, 
have been an investment consultant, been on the advisory role, been selecting managers, right? And, that, and between us, the number of you know designations that we have is ridiculous. So, you know, by by teaming up, we became so much more powerful than either mm-hmm. of us speaking on our own because we literally have every aspect of financial services covered between the two of us. And then bringing together our passion for what's often referred to as emerging managers, but I don't love that term because sometimes emerging managers can also be just early managers that can also can be, um, you know, white men. And in California, I think it was Prop 16 actually kept pension funds uh, like the um, CalPERS and whatnot from defining emerging managers with any kind of criteria about women or people of color. So it's been, I think, feel like the term has been perverted a little bit to call emerging managers. I also just like, so this is my beef too, that emerging manager sounds like it's the special category, additional due diligence, more concern about risk, like really this other, other thing. And why? Because it's run by women, people of color. So I'm kind of trying to get away from talk about diverse managers, which just means they're managers at whatever stage, but those who are running it are women or people of color. So I'm with you on the on the nomenclature, but most banks still call their programs emerging manager programs. They do. They do. I was actually at a tonic, tonic event where we were talking about this in a breakout session, and there was a, a, a white man who runs his own fund, and I yeah, just gave him the same spiel that I did now, and he's like typing away like mad. He's like, I don't mean to be rude, but I realize we do this. We do exactly what you said. And I'm typing to everyone to tell them we need to stop doing this right now. And I was like, wow, that is just so awesome to see like one conversation has instantly changed the way this man will run his advisory firm. And that's part of Mm -hmm. why, you know, I take the time to to do these kinds of things and uh, educate folks about how the system works and how it's set up and how it really does uh, keep capital out of the hands of women and people of color. It really does. So effective today, we no longer use the terminology Haas community of emerging managers. It is diverse managers. Yeah. So (laughs) you and Tracy, you talk through five due diligence structural barriers. This is for Uh foundations and their related investment committees can easily break down and do today for better outcomes for women and BIPOCs, or which BIPOCs are Black, Indigenous, and Latinx people of color. So let, let's talk about first outcome or what we can do or what foundations. And I think actually this is not just for foundations. I think these, these five points, any investor along the spectrum from an individual to an institution, either a .com or a .org, can walk away with these low-hanging fruit and change how they look at their investment structure today. So let's take the first one. Okay, taking one real quick step back because this is a super, super important statistic that there's about $70 trillion of assets under management in the United States. As uh, Knight Foundation study mm-hmm. and also the U.S. Government Accountability Office, multiple studies cite this. Of that $70 trillion, 1.7% is controlled by women and people of color combined. So, you know, I'm, I know that there can be like a little bit of defensiveness if you're a white guy listening to this. But when I say white men, it is because there is um, 87 point, sorry, 97.3% of assets in the United States are controlled by white men. So there isn't representation on how capital is allocated, which entrepreneurs, um, the capital trickles down to how those entrepreneurs are hiring people and what kind of policies they put in place or what kind of products and markets they serve. Mm-hmm. So it's not that I'm anti-white man. It's that I go that 97.3% or sorry, 98. I'm a CFO and doing math in my head is not always great. <laughs> 98.3%. <laughs> It's run by, by 
white men. And so that's where we took a step back and said, why? And we hear the same things over and over from foundations. And why we picked foundations, and you're right, this could apply to anybody, Mm -hmm. is because their mission is to do good in the world. Their mission is often around gender equity and racial justice, right? This can go to anyone, but here we're really picking on them because your charitable status is based on fulfilling this mission and you're doing these things. So we really thought, I mean, we had a long, long, long list and we picked these five because we said, you can do this tomorrow. Let's go back to your earlier comment where you said, you know, legally they only have to align 5% of their investable assets towards their mission. That leaves a whole nother 95% that you said, you're, you was like 5% can go for climate crisis, but then the 95%, I'm going to invest in Exxon Mobil. It's actually worse than you said, because that 5% includes administrative expenses. So if your administrative expenses are 2%, then you're giving away 3%. And then there's this whole thing, which I'm, I'm also nerdy and passionate about, is what we call perpetuity versus spend mm-hmm. down. So, mm-hmm. you know, the, the 5% is partly based on if you give away 5% or spend 5% a year and your returns, you know, in the past were 8% on average, now they're probably like 6 uh, from a diversified portfolio. So you make 8% over the long run, you spend five and you grow your corpus. So mm-hmm. you could give more, but the percentage that you're giving is really, really small. So this is actually a really hot topic now is that our foundations created to live in perpetuity, to be basically self-serving as its own organization and its own bureaucracy and create employment or do foundations exist to fulfill that mission? Right. And that's why at Compton, we actually voted to spend down in five years. Because one of there's two main pillars and one is around women, peace and security. We believe that getting more women involved in government policy, decision to go to war, how war is fought, post-reconciliation, you know, re- actually improves national sec- or global security. Right. The other is climate change. So like, what are, what are we sitting around for giving around, you know, 5% a year when you're fighting climate change? I mean, if you put the assets around those issues, peace and safety, climate, education, healthcare, racial and social justice, then there will be a there won't be a need to have a corpus in perpetuity. Right. What are we gonna what are we looking at thirty years if the climate right. continues at its current rate, right? I might argue with something Agreed. like education, you don't just fix education in the next five years. Well, not over that now. might lend itself for a longer um, duration, but but most missions, I'm like, yeah, you have a you have a 50 year plan, really. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, so there's that, but I don't think it's checking the box. I think it's been done this way for so long, and you're fulfilling the requirements. But you can spend more. You can spend eight percent, ten percent. You can spend out a fund for nonviolence. Just got their donor um, passed away, and she left it in her will. She wants them to spend out in ten years. Why not? So that's part of it. But the other aspect is that it's not, there's no malintent from the investment side doing different than the program side, than the grant side. Just the two are siloed and investment people don't always think in a social justice framework, right? Or they don't even, always, hardly ever. I know. Or they're criticized if they even <laughs> like the thought crosses their mind, right? But again, this is right. why we picked on foundations because if there was an area, where investments could and should, should be, considering yeah. this is there, right? I mean, I, of course, I think it's everywhere. But that's why, like, uh, you know, Tracy's involvement with the Confluence Philanthropy community, being a trustee on an endowment, me as a treasurer of a foundation, being the CFO Tonic, where we have lots of foundation members, we just felt like we needed to, to lift the veil on these practices that are really easy to fix. So the first issue we wanted to dismantle was the misconception that women and people of color as fund managers are more risky. There is just a a ton of data out there. In fact, there's some really good stuff on Berkeley's Women in Leadership Conference had a bunch of resources about every aspect of diversity actually improves performance. I have not yet seen a single study that says less diversity is better. Not one. But why is there this misconception of risk? Well, when people are different than you, you have biases, right? You can't identify Mm -hmm. with them. You don't speak the same language. 
we hear things like, oh, their presentations weren't very polished. Tracy's heard this and she's like, what do you mean by polished? What does that it's mean? Like, right. It's like the secret handshake you don't know. And I've never seen or heard of a study that said polished presentations equaled higher returns. Right. So this is really in the bias <laughs> land because all the data says that <laughs> women and people of color are less risky and perform better. So, you know, Goldman Sachs put out in an article that funds in the US run by all women or mixed uh-huh. gender teams actually outperformed by a hundred basis points or one percent in the first three quarters of twenty twenty. I mean, that's that's pandemic time. And they outperformed by right. a, That's huge. The other thing I'll say is like, I've never seen a study that even evaluates the risk or return uh, trade-off of white men. And so when you think about like 2008, when the Russell 3000 dropped by like 40% or so, Mm -hmm. I mean, if you just extrapolate that 98.3% statistic, all those funds and companies being run by white men and nobody asks for any kind of justification. There's no criticism. That was actually my most favorite statistic and quote in this article, which was by Kristen Hall, who's the founder and CEO of Mia Impact Capital. And that was a, a quote of what happened with the Russell 3 in 2008. So this is also one of my favorite quotes. And this happened at the pool when Mm -hmm. she, when she walked by and she literally (laughs) said when the Russell 3000 index dropped by 38.7% in 2008, no one questioned the white men managing it. Mm. And so there, and like I said, there's no studies to evaluate white male performance because it's the same. They would never do studies on themselves. Well, yeah, exactly. And even in the process of writing this article, and then it was pitched to SSIR and we did a ra- several rounds with their editors. Um, there were continu- I understand it, you know, but continual requests for data and research to prop up every single statement we said. And at some point we said, you, you got to stop asking for the research now because it's there. It's time to just change it. And it's not just, well, actually, all the research says diverse teams do outperform and have less risk. But even if that wasn't the case, well, we, maybe it's the right thing to do. And I remember you sharing with me how it took you and Tracy. I mean, clearly this just published at the end of last year, yeah, right? December. But this has been a, a year, two year in process. Two years. And just, I think it's, it, it share, I mean, that when you shared that with me, I was just like, what? Like, are we still, like, this is the 21st century, and, and, and we're still fighting, and this is just for a publication. You, like we said in the beginning, the issues here aren't new, but the fact, let's just share the struggle of even getting this published, and thank yeah, you, I Stanford mean, Social well, Innovation Review. <laughs> yes, thank you very much. I mean, some of it, too, is just we're so damn busy doing the real work that to do the activism on the side is challenging. But also um, you had you had publications or organizations yeah. that wanted you to, I'm going to say, water it down or soften the tonality. Yes. So tone it down. And that's something yeah. I am definitely conscious of as a woman. Tracy was more conscious than me as a Black woman. Mm-hmm. And, and we had a really frank discussion with the editors that some of the toning down they wanted to make it sound less confrontational. Felt, um, she felt muzzled as a Black woman. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. it's really hard for somebody to push back on that, right? You're like, I don't want you to feel muzzled. And they gave in. They gave in on a lot of things that um, would have made it sound so much more conciliatory or giving caveats. And we know everybody tries their best. It's like, no, it's time to, it's time to actually make the change. The fact that our tone is so confrontational, and still I read it and go, I don't think it's very confrontational. I don't think it's confrontational at all. It's because we use the term white men and the majority of the investment world still is still white, white men. Male. Yep. Right. And so it really, and you know, I can understand that because when some of my black girlfriends were like, 
Kim, you got to get your white women under control. Why are they voting for Trump? I'm like, I don't know them. Like, I can't. You know, <laughs> You're like, those aren't my man, people. You know? And so then, you know, the white guys that read this, like, I'm not like that. You know, they have a defensive reaction. I completely understand it. And then you also have to recognize that if you're one of those 98.3% white males controlling capital, you're still part of the problem, even if your intentions are good. And when we That's look right. at all of these, you know, these were the stated obstacles that we kept hearing from foundations in particular. We're concerned mm-hmm. about the risk. We're concerned about, you know, they don't meet the criteria. We don't have enough pipeline. So Tracy and I took those away and we're like, we're going to, we're going to, you know, just rip each one of these apart and go, okay, you don't have enough pipeline. Here's how to fix your pipeline. You're worried about risk. Here's the data about risk. So nugget number two, yes. rethink your criteria. Yes. What are we so doing there? In, in due diligence, especially fund managers, private equity funds in particular, there's a bunch of criteria that I alluded to before, like, you know, having a polished presentation doesn't, there's no statistical study saying that, you know, results in higher returns. But there's these things that we call CYA or cover your ass. And it's basically things that everybody does. And if you do it, you think you'll be safe because you said you did what everybody else does. So these types of requirements are like, you must have invested together previously Mm -hmm. or in this fund. So if you're a woman or a person of color who doesn't come from wealth, how do you invest? How are we going to invest? How are we going to co-invest alongside you? Yep. How are we going to do that? Yep. Yep. Then there's the expectation that if you're investing in your fund, you also don't need uh, your own income while you're ramping up and fundraising, right? So you need to be able to, to support yourself for several years without any pay and invest. That's not realistic unless you, you yeah. come from privilege, right? The worked together criteria. Have you ever worked together? Have you ever managed money together? But when there's so few women and people of color, how do you do that when you also can't even get in a position of managing money? So another is um, the minimum size. Right. So, you know, if you're, you can understand it to agree if you're Ford and you have billions, it's really hard to say we're going to look at funds that are 5 million, right? But there's an average, we usually hear 50 million, 100 million, 200 million. That's kind of the the, uh, minimum threshold sizes that you hear of assets under management. So you must have already raised 50 million, 100 million, 200 million. That's really difficult to do. You're trying to go out and get your first million and they're like, well, when you get 50, then welcome it. Okay, so again, you must already come from from privilege or wealth and have that kind of connection, angel network, et cetera, to get to that size. Then the criteria sometimes moves. So this is, I can't say who it was, but we'll just say somebody who also walked by the pool in Puerto Rico told us that they were told 100 million and they got to 100 million. And they said, oh, well, when you're 200, then we'll consider you, right? Then track records. So how do you count your track records? Do you have to be the portfolio manager? Can you be somebody who's making investment decisions? If you leave, can you port your track record? Oh, you can't? Oh, then it's like you never invested anything. So being more flexible about how you can evaluate somebody's previous track record, letting them port something, even if they weren't the number one decision maker, because you could have tons of investment um, decision-making experience. And then they go, oh, it's like you have zero. We can't invest in you because we can't see your track record. And then what's the track record? three years, mm-hmm. three funds, right? And that moves around too. So if we are going to open up the field more, that is literally something that, so the first one, risk, like just change your mind. The data is out there. Stop being mm-hmm. biased, right? Two is then change your due diligence criteria. Think about how all of that actually creates a structural barrier for capital to be allocated to diverse fund managers. Okay, so we've talked about the risk misconceptions. You've shared with us how we need to rethink criteria around diverse managers. Let's talk about confronting blind spots. What are the blind spots? So these are, these are things that are simply not true. <laughs> so one of them is that we kept hearing over and over again, we, we just don't have a pipeline. We can't find them. Where are these diverse fund managers? Right. So we kind of we call people on that and say, well, if your network is the same network you've had, they've been investing with or investing in, you're still going to have this pipeline problem. And it's not that the, the reality is there aren't options out there. It's that you're not connected with them. So we talk about 
how investors can expand their network. There's VC Include, which focuses on Black Investment Opportunities, Gender Smart Investing Summit as a global movement. Um, they actually bring in like everybody, governments, financial institutions, impact investors to focus on gender. Private equity, women investor network. There's a Latin venture capital network. So you got to actually start showing up. And, you know, having some really honest conversations and creating safe space, especially with, you know, the 98.3% of white males. They're, they're nervous. They're afraid of showing up. Why are they nervous? What are they afraid being, and nervous of, Em? They're afraid of being the only, the only white man in the room. Ooh. Right? Will they be welcome? Should they go? Will they be, you know, called out? And I tell them, like, so my entire career, until, like, probably the last, you know, five years or so, I've often been the only woman in the room. Girl, welcome to the world right? of the Black woman. Right. So like <laughs> they have never had to experience the discomfort, the assimilation, the code shifting mm-hmm. that one must do when you enter in an environment where everyone else looks different than you. I've but, never had yeah. to do it before. Yeah. So it's super intimidating. And I will recognize that as, you know, the humanity in that, but also then say, listen, it's actually even easier now. You can show up on Zoom. And just be that little, you know, Hollywood square there and listen in and learn, right? The, the, the That's right. excuses are getting smaller and smaller. <laughs> but that's part of the pipeline problem. If you're not willing to expand your network, you're never going to see other investment opportunities. Is it, I'm going to challenge you here. Is it fear of being the only one or fear of relinquishing or not being in the majority at the table, right? Not being in the, in the majority anymore. I don't know if it's fear. I don't know if it's fear. I mean, I have to be a little careful here and not speak for all white men as I am not one, but what I have observed is the fear of being, you know, called out, the fear of being the only one in the room. There's certainly the, 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 I think there's an unconscious fear. There's a pie. And if anyone else gets a slice of the pie, their pie gets smaller. Right. That's Rather it. Than, than growing That's the pie. It. That's it. <laughs> There's even an acknowledgement by trying that maybe you weren't doing it right before. Right. Okay. I'm going to try exactly. and open my mind. Well, that means my mind was closed before. Right. So, right. so, you know, I think, I think there's a lot that can be there and I think it's different mm-hmm. for everyone. I think there's some amazing guys oh, out absolutely. there. And I also think that, um, and I've talked to some recently too, where they said, it's so hard to go up against another senior male because it's mm. like a pack and you're you know, not conforming to the pack. And then you can be ostracized and there's fear about that. So, you know, I think there, there's, I there's a lot, there's a lot to it beyond just yeah, I have to give up some of my privilege. Yeah, I have to let go of my slice of the pie. I might, and I don't know why this would be true, but you know, maybe I have to make less in order to give someone else a living wage. I mean, Bezos, come on. You could give each of your, you know, I saw a stat, you could give each of your employees $100,000 and still be a billionaire. Like, just do it, man. Like, <laughs> that's trickle-down <laughs> economics. Okay, so that was our third takeaway. The yeah. fourth. The fourth is really being better than mainstream investors. This is, again, this is why we're picking on the foundations, right? You should mm-hmm. be better than the mainstream investors. Mm-hmm. You have mm-hmm. a mission that your investments are working against. The thing that foundations, I mean, all institutional investors often do is you have a beauty show with managers. It's well known, I don't have data on this. It's well known that women and people of color spend a disproportionate amount of their time on due diligence, proving themselves, additional rounds, more references, right? Because of the risk misconception. But then they'll get, as Tracy called it, calls it ghosted. Same thing in dating. <laughs> like you put it out there, you follow up, you never hear anything back. And it's really important really important not only to invest in these people, not only to take, it's perceived risk, it's not real risk you're taking, but if it's your perception of risk, take it. But even then, you can take half a second to go back to that diverse manager 
and tell them why they didn't get it. Help them improve. Was it your materials weren't polished enough? Well, what does that even mean? Is it one of these other criteria? How can you fix it? Is it just the investment philosophy? Hmm. Right? You don't believe that it will make returns or have the impact you want or fit with the rest of your portfolio. But when you ghost diverse managers, they're just sitting there not knowing why. And by being a partner with these managers, you can help them along with their own journey to uh, raise capital and be successful. So that's the main thing there. Like if your goal is to help women and people of color and you're not helping your managers who are women and people of color, you know, you're, it's, it's quite hypocritical. So to round it, round out our takeaways or our action items as investors, what do you mean by be willing to fire your advisor? <laughs> so this is Who also considered, this is very, very controversial. Just fire them. Uh, Just yeah. Them, you know. So advisors, and we're talking about Morgan Stanley's, uh, boutique firms, people that say, here's how you should invest your money, portfolio construction, and then who the managers or underlying investments should be in each of those asset classes. They're really making the decisions. Mm-hmm. We, we hire them, foundations, high net worth individuals, anyone else that hires an advisor does so because of their expertise. And because it helps with um, fiduciary duty, right? Hiring an expert to manage um, your investments seems wise. Right. However, this is actually an atonic research study from like 2018, but your advisor can also be the greatest obstacle towards having more impact or allocating capital in a more fair way. And the way that most advisors work is that there's a model portfolio. So your portfolio construction or how much is allocated to each asset class, bonds, equities, private private equity, real estate, commodities, et cetera, shifts around a bit based on risk tolerance, duration, like you're going to retire in five years or you're a foundation in perpetuity, right? But there's usually a model portfolio. And then in each asset class, there's a list of preferred managers, So you've already done the work, you've already narrowed it down, you have a relationship with them. Like all of this Mm -hmm. kind of makes good sense, right? You want to have a repeatable process, economies of scale. But what happens when somebody says, I actually want to express my values through my investments, or I even want to just make sure I'm not harming my mission through my investments. Basically, that client becomes a little bit of a, a thorn in that manager's side. They have to do more work. So when you try to take your advisor along with you, kicking and screaming, sometimes you'll find one. Like I was at a traditional firm and with the Compton Foundation, I was like, hell yeah, let's do this. Let's think out of the box. Let's replace these managers. We had to get out of an evergreen fund. Mm-hmm. And that was, I had to come up with a really creative solution because you can't get out of an evergreen fund normally. What's an evergreen fund? Oh, sorry. An evergreen fund is one that doesn't have a have a timeline, like most private equity funds will say eight to 10 years with one, maybe two, two year extensions, but the funds are supposed to liquidate at some point. So Evergreen never liquidates. And their Evergreen fund had a holding where there are some drones, drone technology that's supposed to help find Mm -hmm. water in developing countries. And it ended up being used um, for military purposes to, to kill people. And this is the Compton Foundation whose mission was around peace, right? So like, we got to get out of this, but we can't get out of this. And so anyways, I was able to Wait, create something. What? Your advisor had put you? No, the, into, into, well, the, they'd been put into this fund like 10 or 15 years earlier. And as okay. I, their advisor, was researching what the performance was and what the drivers were, okay. discovered this. Said, so they had no idea. They had no idea. You guys need to know this. And then I did the work to get them That's out of good. the Evergreen Fund, right? That is very rare. So, you know, you could spend the next five, 10 years trying to get your advisor to get on the same page as you, or you can fire them. And why I say fire them is I do not believe institutions change if their bottom line is not affected. When clients start to walk, because they will not uh, 
produce the products or the level of service um, that the client requires, when they leave, then they have to say, hmm, why did we, why did we lose that client, right? And then, you know, these other impact investing, impact advisory firms are getting more and more business. So they're, they've become real competition where if clients had never left, okay. there would be no impetus for internal change. Well, what I have one more question for you. Foundations are institutions. Yep. They will hire investment managers who are on yes. the street. What, what are your thoughts? I mean, in 2020, we've seen a number of those institutional investment managers launch their own impact or value-aligned or mission-aligned funds internally. Yeah. So I have two thoughts on that. One is that that's great. So seeing these really large institutions come out in favor of ESG, environmental social mm-hmm. governance factors, in investing is fabulous because, again, there's many trillions of dollars that they're managing. Mm-hmm. So to at least consider this, we kind of call that financial ESG so that you're thinking about the financial impact of environment, social, and governance. So, uh, you know, BP lost how many millions or billions of stockholder value because of the oil spill. So they're thinking more that way. And in fact, another side, the Chartered Financial Analyst Institute has now put out a paper uh, or guidance about two years ago saying that if you don't consider ESG factors, you are mm-hmm. violating your fiduciary duty. Okay. But when we're in the tonic community where we're really focusing on deep impact, not just avoiding harm, not just benefiting people, but having catalytic change, ESG is really, really light. It's just, and it's a lot of counting numbers, counting number mm-hmm. of women on boards and things like that, not really looking at the impact or the potential change that an invest- investment can have. It's certainly harder in public equities, but it's not, not impossible. So it's kind of mixed feelings like, yay, it's becoming mainstream and it still is just like a baby step. But a baby step in the right direction. Correct. I think investors are always appreciative of actionable items things, you know, that they can actually do. And so you and Tracy have given us five. So as we mentioned earlier, this is not just meant for foundations, right? Yeah. These five takeaways can be implemented by any investor, be it an individual or an institutional money manager. So what's next for Emily? Mm. Well, Beyond the momentum that this article has picked up, because we've had a, a follow-up pieces in financial news, pensions and investments. There's another one in the works that I can't talk about just yet. We did a webinar for Harvard Business School alumni, and now this. And this has all happened in two months. So I think this is a, an area that's really a hot topic now, and there will be more interest. Uh, the other two areas I'm very passionate about are, are fiduciary duty, and I'd like to do more about the misconceptions of fiduciary duty and how it's misapplied in a way that um, basically keeps pe- people from doing good with their money instead of evil, as I like to oversimplify. And the other one is tax optimization. What? Yeah. You want me to put my accounting hat back on? <laughs> yeah, I know, and your private banker hat. So talk to when, me. When? companies and when high net worth individuals do tax avoidance, like let's, you know, it's Mm -hmm. not evasion, it's avoidance, right? And we look at the deficits we have in the government and how little, you know, teachers are paid and their pension funds are underfunded. And that's one example of, of literally hundreds. And you go, why would it be, this wealth be better in your hands to invest with your values versus being in the government's hands, okay? And this is the conversation I have with high net worth individuals that they don't trust the government, but they're also sitting there with all of this wealth in their own family office or their own donor-advised fund and not allocating it. So when you do tax avoidance to create more wealth and you're already wealthy, you're actually not having impact on the on social or environmental issues. So that's my, you know, it's kind of the next reckoning is should you be doing tax avoidance to create your own wealth or giving it to the government who provides social services? Tax optimization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I call it avoidance. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> tax optimization uh-huh. so that you pay less taxes to the government. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Okay. Exactly. Well, <laughs> I want to let you know that I'm grateful for you, as you already Thank know you. this. And I am so excited. I, I, I'm glad you said yes to the offer and to the invite to join us at One Haas. I hope that the Haas community walks away with some action items from you, from the article, from you and Tracy. But also, I want the Haas community, more importantly, walk away from the inspiration of who Emily Cortez is. And how you have truly found your path. I always like to say, Sean knows this. I'm a girl about a path of purpose, right? Uh Into what ignites your heart every morning when you wake up. And you know what you do. What yeah. you're doing. Producer duty, tax optimization, credit tax risk. Tax optimization. Yep. Lights, yeah, lights all me that. up. Yep. Lights you up, gets you excited, <laughs> and puts a smile on your face. So thank you, my thank fellow you, class of 2002, B-School Bestie. Yep. Thank you for joining us on the One Hot Hoss podcast. Thank you. I love you, man. I love you more. Whatever. I'm grateful for the both of you. <laughs> yes. And thanks, Sean, for the opportunity again. Um, and I just want to say, yeah, this was a great kickoff to International Women's Month. Mm-hmm. So thank you for joining us. Yeah, I'm stoked about it. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the One Haas Podcast. If you enjoyed our show today, please remember to hit that subscribe or follow button on your favorite podcast player. We'd also really appreciate you giving us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more content, please check out our website at haas.fm. That's spelled H-A-A-S dot F-M. There you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter and check out some of our other Berkeley Haas podcasts. And until next time, go Bears. Go Bears.